Welcome to the teaching ministry of C4 Church. All right. Good morning, C4 family. Oh, every time. Good morning, C4 family. There we go. Good morning. Uh, we're so glad that you're joining us, as Joanna was saying, on this unbelievably beautiful summer weekend. I want to say hi to you on our online audience, probably much larger today, since many of you are traveling. Uh, as, as Pastor Joe just said, we are starting a brand new series for the summer out of the book of Ruth. And so if you actually have a Bible, physically or virtually, we'd love you to turn there. And we're going to start, of course, in chapter 1, just at the beginning. And uh, again, I was reflecting as I was preparing this. I, I can't remember the last time uh, I had heard someone actually speak through the book of Ruth. And yet, as we're about to find out, Ruth is a, is a powerful book. It's a profound book. It's only four chapters long. It's written thousands of years ago, over 3,000 years ago. And yet, I just want to say to you today, whether you have been a Christian for days, months, or, or years, or decades, or you're genuinely seeking and you've not embraced God fully yet in a personal way, no matter where you are on the journey, God's Word is living, it's active, and God is about to speak because he always is. And the book of Ruth may be old, and yet it's relevant and powerful for 2012. Now, before we dive into this famous love story, because that's what it is, before we see the connections between Ruth and Jesus himself, and before we begin to understand that this love story actually is a precursor to a grand love story that is God's move and God's invitation to all people groups to come back to know him again in a marriage-like way, we need to stop right at the beginning of the series and see what's behind the story. We need to see God's work, God's hand, God's design, God's ongoing action. That's why Nikki's songs today that she chose to lead us in, in worship were so appropriate. See, we will never understand the power of Ruth. We will never have the full impact of Ruth. It will actually be lessened in us if we do not step back for a moment and bring back a rarely said Old English word. It is the word providence. Providence. Something that most people don't talk about anymore. And yet, if you want to understand this book, that idea needs to be clear in all of our minds. Some of you are saying, well, John, I've never heard that word. What does that word mean? Well, here it is. Providence means sovereignty enacted. It means God's present activity in the world right now. See, we as Christians do not believe that God just created the world, wound up the clock, and walked away. That's called deism. We vehemently reject that. We do not believe that God is a distant God who does not care. We believe that God is an active God. He's active in the world. He not only rules the world, but he actually sustains all of reality. You really want to understand providence? Go home this week and read Colossians chapter 1. The idea is God not only created all things and not only sustains all things, he's still involved. God is at work at this moment, right now, at this second, on a cosmic level. He's involved on a global level, and he's even involved on a personal level, whether you know it or not. He sustains all of reality, and he is also working out his plan throughout history to actually bring redemption. Redemption is that word to be bought back, to be making things right again. He's involved in the affairs of everyday life. In all of those spaces, in all of those environments, providence, God's current ongoing action, is afoot. 
That is the foundation for the book, by the way, of Ruth. And as we will begin to see, as you walk through Ruth, providence gets clearer and clearer. But it's interesting as we get going. Providence not only acknowledges that God is Lord, but also begins to tell us that within the bounds of what he said, we can or cannot live within his limits. The implication of providence pushes all of us to to a place we don't expect. See, the implication of providence actually says that our culture, whether it's deeply religious or military or secular or spiritual, is wrong. Providence at its heart teaches us that we are not the beginning or the end. We are not the rulers nor the makers of our own destiny at all. Let me say that again. We are not the makers of our own destiny. Nations are not the makers of their own destiny. Now, what I'm about to utter in the next few minutes is very important. But this next line, hear it clearly. Twitter people, this is important. Christians, catch catch this. For Christians, the world, history, and our own personal lives do not find ultimate meaning within themselves. Let me say that again. History and the world and your own narrative and my own narrative do not have ultimate meaning in themselves. Most people teach that you are the master of your own destiny and your own own story matters significantly. Well, it does matter, but it does not have ultimate purpose. The world and history and your story and my story only find full meaning in relationship to God and his purposes. See, this is why Christianity, when people really start thinking, becomes so offensive and dangerous to people. Why? Because we are an other-centered movement. We reject the notion that I, John Thompson, by himself, is profoundly worthy and is the master of his own destiny. We are like the moon. God is like the sun. He is the heat source and he is light and we only reflect him. But when we choose not to interact with the sun, we just become cold and dead. At its heart, that worldview threatens so much of what our culture is built on. But the book of Ruth is all about this idea. Now, like I said, the book of Ruth is only four chapters long. It's written 3,000 years ago and it forces us to face so much. Race, Risk, God, his names, sovereignty, free will, the problem of evil, sex, love, friendship, darkness, light, and ultimately the coming of Jesus. All of those themes in these four chapters we're going to dive into this summer. In the book of Ruth, God is going to speak to us about suffering with purpose. God is going to talk to us about redemption and miracles. God is also going to begin to teach us that we do have profound value when we see it through him in his eyes and not ourselves. But our story today does not start in a movie-esque place. This is a famous love story, I know, and many people want this to be like the notebook, and we just get to that moment, and there are swans. It's not happening. The book of Ruth begins in a time where there's actually darkness, where fear was actually stronger than faith. Hear the word of God, the very first few lines, or the first line. Ruth 1.1 reads like this, In the days when the judges ruled. And we need to stop right there. Most people would keep reading, but this gives us the grounding for this whole love story. This is a time between the death of Joshua and the coronation of King Saul. It's a 400-year period in Israel, and it was tough, to say the least. You can actually read about this in the book of Judges. It's the book right before Ruth. Here's the heartbeat of it. 
God is the true ruler of his people. He brought them out of Egypt miraculously with Moses. Moses dies. Joshua brings them into the promised land. And then this is when the period of judges begin. There is no king. And yet God, who is their king, chooses to give them rulers or judges. And they would read and they would live and they would rule. This is the time of Ehud and Samson and Deborah and Gideon. If you grew up in church, this is Sunday School Land 101. The amazing stories in the judges. And yet when you read through Judges carefully, you realize how dark it is. This is the best description of the time that Ruth lived in Judges chapter 2 verse 16. It said that God would raise up judges who would save his people out of the hands of raiders. They were constantly being invaded. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but, interesting word, prostituted themselves to other gods and they worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned away from which what their fathers had walked in the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Don't forget, these are the people that saw all the miracles in Egypt. It's their grandchildren and great-grandchildren. They have the Ten Commandments at this point. They reject those. Whenever the Lord would raise up a judge for them, he was the judge and save them out of the hand of their enemies. And as long as the judge lived, as long as the judge lived, for the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. They kept getting invaded by neighboring tribes and nations. Verse 19, but when the judge would die, the people returned to the ways even more corrupt than of their fathers, following other gods and serving them and worshiping them. And they, here it is, and they refused to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. This is a time of civil strife, national upheaval, internal concerns, the birth pains of a new establishing nation. This is the battle between races. This is the battle between the gods that owned these nations. This is the battle between God himself and those demons that tried to be Yahweh. It is a time of dangerous and social chaos. There are invasions, unchecked lawlessness. At points there is tribal civil war. And notice this, these are the only people on earth at this moment that knew God's name, that knew him personally. And yet they would keep having affairs on him with idols and demons. And so this is like a hot and cold marriage that was beginning to collapse over time because they weren't satisfied enough with the God that had saved them and the God they were in relationship with. It's one of the last words in the book of Judges that summarizes this painful time. Judges 21:25 reads like this. In those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as he saw fit. Think about that. Everyone did as he saw fit. Those are terrifying words. This is anarchy, not just politically. This is anarchy for real. Can you imagine if all of us in this church decided to do just what we wanted? Terrible. And we have a whole nation, but what's more terrifying than that is that this is written about those that had God's word and were his chosen people. And yet, God still chooses to act. Providence is not shut down. He still chooses to move. And amazingly, though he is holy, he still is deeply loving. So the book of Ruth is in this time, during this 400-year period. But actually, the book of Ruth actually moves from that 400-year period right down to one town and one family. It says in verse 1, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in a country called Moab. Now, famines are scary. Most of us sitting in here or online have never experienced famine. We've watched it from a distance. 
But when there is no food, everything goes sideways. Now, we don't know why this was actually happening. It could have been an invasion from a neighboring country. If you read the book of Judges, the Midianites would invade and Gideon was raised up to save them. We don't know why, though. This could be drought, disease, locusts, invasion, loss of livestock. But what's really interesting is this. This could be actually God's very hand. God actually could have decided to let this famine happen to his own people. Now, don't go quickly there. Am I saying that God instructs and allows in the sense he does every single thing on earth that is wicked? No. Am I saying he causes every natural disaster? I am not. But do not miss that these people are in a relationship with God. God is in a marriage relationship with these people. And because of that, he deeply loved them. But they had an agreement together. And as we've seen, they had multiple spiritual affairs on him. And so he had warned them multiple times before that if they continued to worship other deities and other gods, and if they continued to intermarry with other groups that would seduce them into false practices, one of the consequences would be he would take his hands of protection off and famine would come. It reads like this in Leviticus 26, 18. After all of this, he said, if you will not listen to me, I will punish you for your sins seven times over. I will break down your stubborn pride and make the sky above you like iron and the ground beneath you like bronze. Your strength will be spent in vain because your soil will not yield crops nor the trees of the land yield their fruit. Am I saying 100% that this famine is caused by the hand of God? I can't say that, but it sure seems that way. And so the people of God are having multiple affairs and God's hand of protection steps off just for a moment, though he still is love. And now we are coming down to one person and one family in a place called Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a large town five miles south from modern-day Jerusalem. Bethlehem, by the way, means house, interestingly, house of bread. It was a place of great fertility. Bethlehem at this time was known for wheat, barley, olives, almonds, and grapes. In other words, they were producing muesli before the Europeans. So, right? So this is what they were known for. And, and they were actually a famed agricultural area. And yet at this moment, there's a famine, and they are not the house of bread anymore. And yet before we keep going, this is the place we need to stop. See, this is the first sign that this story is much larger than we think. This family is from Bethlehem, and, and this family lives in this place. Here's why this is important. This family actually is the precursor. This is the family of Jesus, as we're going to find out. And of course, Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem. Thousands of years later, this very place where we're starting, the Messiah, the Son of God, the bread of life, the one who would actually overcome the famine of sin, death, and Satan, is going to be born, and he's going to bring the kingdom of God, which will begin the grand reversal of all things that are wrong. Now, just before we get going, let's just take a moment in the middle of July and hear the Christmas story. Luke 2.4, Joseph went up to the town of Nazareth in Galilee, to Judah, to Bethlehem, to the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David, which, by the way, we'll find out is Ruth's line. While they were there, a time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that's for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior is born to you. He is Christ the Lord. 
This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly, it says, uh, suddenly uh, with the angel appeared a great company of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to people on whom his favor rests. This is what is going to come from Bethlehem. This is what is going to come from Ruth's line, but we can't go there yet. We're still with that family, a different family, making the decision whether they can live or survive or leave. And so they make that terrible decision of moving. The very fields those shepherds were in, the very fields that the angels would sing over thousands of years later at this moment are barren. So their decision was to go to a neighboring nation. They go to Moab. There's food there and there's work. And so they go. This small nation is about 50 miles southeast of Jerusalem. And it seems logical. I mean, when there's famine, you leave and you go get food for your family. Most of us would probably read this detail and go, it's a historical footnote, let's move on. But we can't. See, the power of this story, the power of what God is about to do, and the implications of this family are tied up with this little phrase. See, they've decided to go to Moab. And Moab is Israel's enemy. Moab originally was a man. He's Lot's son, Abraham's nephew, Lot, his son. The land of Moab is actually where Lot's descendants lived. They were the enemies of Israel throughout history. Time and time again, they were, a, they were a thorn in the Hebrew side. When Israel came out of Egypt and was heading towards the promised land, they did not attack the Moabites, but these people would not give them bread or water, would not assist them, though they were ancient cousins, and actually called up a sorcerer to curse them. The Moabites hated the Jews. And it's a difficult time. Why such animosity? Well, not only are they ancient relatives, but they were worshipers of a god named Chemosh. Chemosh was a wicked deity that demanded that children and adults be sacrificed to him living. These people, the Moabites, were called the children of Chemosh, just like the Jews were called the children of Yahweh. And so you have a supernatural showdown taking place in the heavenlies. But there's more. This was political too. This was racist. This was ethnic. This was war. During the time of the judges, one king, Eglon, invaded Israel and for 18 years made all of Israel their slaves. So you need to understand this, and so do I. These people choose to go to a land that had just invaded them and made their ancient ancestors by a generation all slaves. They go to a place where they know that the gods that are there are wicked and evil, where human sacrifice is normative. They become resident aliens in a country that maybe is neutral at best or enemy at worst. So here's the question this morning. Was this move disconnected? Was this move distrustful? Was this move sinful? Were they walking away from their own problems because they had committed adultery on their own God, so they decided to go to another country knowing it was wicked? The answer is, maybe. Everyone's like, thanks. Well, maybe. We don't know. But as we're going to see in the book of Ruth, week after week, God overcomes tragedy, brokenness, and sin. And those three things are not necessarily interrelated. See, God's active work, his providence, covers our mistakes and the mistakes of others. So that was just verse 1. See, you can see why I can preach on this for seven weeks. Verse 2. The man's name was Elimelech. 
His wife's name was Naomi, and his two sons were Malion and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab, and they lived there. Elimelech means, interestingly, my God is king, and Naomi means beautiful, pleasant, lovely. But as we're about to see, both of those names are going to see a, a very different side. So they move. They become immigrants, just like many people do in our own nation. They make that decision. They are going to a better place, and they go even to a place they struggle with, and they have committed exodus. They hope for better things, and they finally see the light at the end of the tunnel. No more famine, no more stealing, no more violence that comes with famine. But suddenly, the most natural and most unnatural thing takes place. As they arrive in the country, everything they've hoped for is dashed. They're now forced into almost like a bitter irony. For the man who actually is leading them, Elimelech, dies. It says in verse 3, when he dies, she's now left with his two sons. Now he died before his time. He's robbed of his years. He, he makes a move to help his family. He's trying to be a good father and dad. And then there's one word we all know so well, tragedy. And time and time again, when tragedies take place, we personally in our own lives and in this story ask, well, where's God in all this? Why is he so quiet? Why is he so distant? What is he up to? Does he, does he, does he even care? Well, there's no answers yet. But not all hope is lost. There's still three out of the four. And so, as many people think, widows sometimes find the great hope in what their children and their children's children can do. And so not all is lost. There is still as light in darkness. It says in verse 4, after they had lived there about 10 years, they married Moabite women. One's name was Orpah and the other Ruth. Not Oprah, Orpah. Notice. Okay? From what I hear, Oprah's name is this name, but they misspelled it. And that's how she got her name, by the way. So Orpah and Ruth. Now, Hebrews were not allowed to marry people from other tribes or other nations. It was forbidden. Why? Because God knows something about us. That when you marry someone, you sort of become like them, right? And so if you start marrying people into other tribes that worship other gods, you will end up violating your own faith. That's why in the New Testament it's clear. Do not, if you're a Christian, marry a non-Christian. They could be wonderful, but they will lead you away from the one you love. And so here we have these gentlemen who are worshipers of God and they marry Moabite women. Have they sinned? Well, interestingly, no. The Moabites, because they were ancestors of common roots, you were allowed to marry Moabites. It was not a sin like marrying a Canaanite or others. But if you married into a Moabite family and you had children, you and your children would be cut off from worshiping God formally from the assembly. This is what it says in Deuteronomy 23. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord down to the 10th generation. For they did not, Exodus, come to meet you with bread and water when you came out of Egypt. Instead, they hired Balaam, son of Bear, to pronounce a curse on you. Here's the point. They decide to marry these women. I'm sure they're lovely women. We're going to find out one of them absolutely is. And they marry them. Did they sin? Mm, interesting. Probably not. So they marry. They live for 10 years. And as each year passes, a return home is doubtful. They become more and more Moabite in their life and their thinking. They are integrated, it would seem. 10 years of work, 10 years of family, 10 years of food, 10 years of non-famine, but no grandchildren. It's that uncomfortable in-between. Things are good, sort of. And then, unexpectedly, again, a thief shows up. Unexpectedly, tragedy shows up again. And death stalks this family once again. Both Melion, verse 5, and Kilion died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and now without her husband. Can you feel that? Can you sense the shock of that? 
I mean, this must feel undeserved and unexpected. Would this woman who is called pleasant, lovely, delightful, ever recover since now she is broken, alone, and depressed? Would this darkness, would this ash ever turn into beauty? Or would she just die like the rest of her family? See, this is, don't miss this, total loss. Not only had the original family shrunk down to one, but she is now facing famine again. Why? Because she's a widow. See, she has no provision or access because the men in her life have died. This is a male-dominated society. As one pointed out, not only has she lost the three men of her household, but there is now no heir by which the names will be continued. And so the inheritance, the money, is gone. Her men have died, and so have their names. So let me make this real simple for us. No men, no money. No money, no protection. No protection, famine. Famine equals prostitution, begging, or death. See, this woman, Naomi, beautiful and delightful is her name, ten years later is now in the exact same place the story began in verse 1. She is now facing famine as a widow because all of those providers in that culture are gone. So what to do? Not only does she have her mouth to feed, she has now two other daughters. And they're Moabites. What does she do? Does she stay there? Does she go back? Well, the next verse tells us the story's not over. Much, much more is about to happen. She has not, we find out, been fully cut off from her people. She still is in contact with her. her. Her faith has not been violated. She does not worship some demon god that has craved the killing of innocent blood. Her heart's still at home in Judah. And so Exodus will happen again. Verse 6, when she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by, by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughter-in-law prepared to return home from there. Notice the words. God has moved. The name for God here is really important. And, and forgive me for doing all this setup. But this is going to help the whole summer be clear. The name for God here is Yahweh. This God's name, our God's name, is used 6,800 times in the Bible. This name is the most covenantal name. It is the name connected when God showed up in the burning bush to Moses and said, Who are you? Moses said, and God said, Tell my people, and I say to you, I am that I am. It is a covenantal name. It is a marriage name. See, when you know the name of your God in a personal way, you're in relationship with him. This is the God connecting to the saving acts of God. This is a covenantal name. And so this name is used here in the book of Ruth because the God who loves his people, the God who continually comes back to his adulterous people, the God who saves has showed up again, and his name is Yahweh. That is why the heartbeat of the Jewish faith is defined this way in Deuteronomy 6.5. Oh, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Yahweh is God, and Yahweh is one. They use this name because it is the most personal, interactive name. This name declares the uniqueness of God and the unity of God. What he declares about himself is he is God and there is no other. When he speaks, no one can contradict him. When he promises, no one can revoke it. When he warns, no one can provide refuge from his warnings. He's not just the best of all the gods of the time, like Baal or Ammon or Marduk or Chemosh. Nor is he one of the gods we find today, Ganesh, versions of Allah, Buddha, incarnation of the Dalai Lama, capitalism, secularism, fill in the blank. Yahweh was and is the one true, all-powerful, living, personal God who was in relationship with Israel and who called them to loyalty. He is the one that had chastised them, and now he's the one that comes to save them. And that is why his name is used here. 
Yahweh has showed up. The Lord has visited. Not the weather's changed. Not an upturn in the economy. Not war is over. Not that there's no threat of invasion. No, no. God has come and given food. See, Naomi understood providence. Modern people pat her on the head and say, oh, you stupid ancient, if you only understood how the world really worked. No, no, she understands, we don't. She understood that God is God, and all good gifts, directly or indirectly, come from his hand. That is why, as one said, here is the central theme of the Bible. All of life is traced to the very hand of God. To concentrate, concentrate primarily on secondary things encourages us to believe we can manipulate the systems to get what we want. But when we focus on God, we are taught to live by faith. Here's a question. Do you believe you can manipulate things enough to get your way, or do you live by faith? Naomi shows up and says, God has moved among our people And so she says with her two daughter-in-laws, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. The story of Ruth begins in hopelessness. Famine and then rediscovered famine. It's cruel. It's tragedy. It's widowing. And this is the condition she decides to go home in. The road traveled is now about to be traveled again. See, there's no reason to stay in Moab. It was time to move house again. And as the story is about to unfold, if God not only feeds his people, but if in some profound way this woman could actually have grandchildren, we know that God had worked a profound thing in this culture because it should not happen. Against all impossible odds, if a miracle of a child takes place, there is a good chance that this child is going to have significant, significant purpose. Well, he did. Ruth will have children. Ruth will become the great-great-grandmother of a man named David. Anyone know him? King David. From David becomes the line of David. From the line of David comes Jesus himself. And can I just throw this in? Ruth isn't a Hebrew. She's a Moabite. And God decides to tell us he's coming for all of us again. Amen? This is the heartbeat, the beginning of Ruth. Each week, things will get clearer, hopeful. Love will actually shine brighter. We will see honor in a way we don't even experience in our own culture. And yet, before we move quickly there, let me just give you two thoughts as we think about this whole summer series. Only two things I want you to grapple with over the summer that are sort of the foundation of everything else we'll learn and hopefully God will do in our life. And this is for you, again, who do not know God, you who have just found God, and you have been walking with him for a while. Here's the first thing. Everyone ready? Significant. Providence. We have to wrestle with providence. God's active work in the world. Sometimes seen and sometimes not. Providence calls into question our presumption that we are the center of our own realities or even the universe itself. God being active in history or in our lives is a central belief to us as Christians. And it is the central belief as we will see in Ruth. God's work in the world. Do you even believe that? You may be a confessing Christian, but do you live more like an atheist than you do as a Christian? God's active work in the world. Do you see it? Do you believe it? Do you understand it? I love when one person said it this way. As a means to an end, everything in the Bible is about Jesus. And the book of Ruth reveals the hidden hand of God in the bitter experiences of his people. The point of this book is not that just God is preparing the way for Jesus' coming, but that he's doing it in such a way that all of us this morning should learn that the worst times are not wasted in our lives. 
They are not wasted globally, historically, or even personally. When you think that God is farthest from you, or he may have even turned right against you, the truth is, if you and as you cling to him, he might be and probably is laying the foundation stones of greater happiness in your life. The book of Ruth is one of the most graphic stories of how God hides his smiling face behind frowning providence. Such a belief in God's providence gives a firm standpoint from which to seek and understand our world as Christians. We do not as Christians see the glories or tragedies of national or global events or the joys and pains of everyday family life as finding meaning only within themselves. Our own story in human history is not complete enough. The true meaning of everything we experience lies within the purposes of God who has made himself known as loving and holy, personal and infinite, creator and redeemer, sustainer and ruler. Let that sink in. Many of us sitting here as Christians do not believe that our purpose, our life, our boringness, our brokenness, our sin is about God's will being worked out, and yet it is. God takes what has been done inappropriately, what we've done against others, and what he has allowed and what he's ordained, however that works out, and he's working out his will. Now, here's the question. Does God ordain evil? No. God is perfect and holy. He, within his sovereignty, acts himself, but he also allows us to make decisions good or bad. And the implication of free will is we will hurt ourselves, others, and even our world. The question is, are you willing to acknowledge his reign and work? Would you this summer begin to ask God to see the world, your story, your family, through the eyes of providence? Would you let God begin to teach you how he's going to redeem what was broken and use it for good? Even more, would you be willing to say, God, take my good or my bad or my brokenness or my sin or my tragedy and use them to bring your will into the world? In other words, would you be willing to let God take everything that you are and say to him, you are providential and sovereign and your will will bring joy in my life and reconciliation to the world. I'm even willing to give you my pain. Never forget Being a Christian is placing everything you are in the hands of another with no out clause, with no back door and no parachute. Can I say that again? Being a Christian is placing everything that you are and everything that you own in the hands of another with no out clause, no back door, and no parachute. That is why Jesus taught us so clearly that you should really count the cost before you follow him. There is no out clause when you marry the living God of heaven and earth. And yet the difference is, though that seems so scary and terrifying, God is holy and he is love and he can be trusted in the now and not yet. You could never do this with another human being and you could never even do this with yourself, but you can do this with God because of who he is. Would you as a Christian be willing to expand your thinking, your theology, and your experience from not just the saving work of God, but to his lordship that is even beyond your own story? Will you choose to look at your life at this moment? Look at this church. Look at our history. Look at the current place we're at. Will you look at your family, your connect group? Will you look at this world and begin to ask, Oh God, where is your providence at work and what are you up to? It is a very different place to start the conversation. 
Because if you don't start there, everything is random, everything is manipulated, everything is trite, and there is no meaning. The difference between genuine philosophic atheists and us has to do with providence. The book of Ruth, even in tragedy, is the hand of God. How do you feel about that? One other thing, and then I'm done. The amazing story of Ruth reminds us that God will use our stories despite tragedy, brokenness, or sin. The beginning of this story really brings home that no matter where the tragic events came from, God is at work. Many of you sitting here today have felt that your life is filled with tragedy because God is angry at you because of your sin. Many Christians live their whole Christian life powerfully defeated because they think God's hand is angry at them and against them because of what they have done or what they struggle with. Now, is the answer that sometimes God does discipline us? Of course. Does sometimes actually God take his hands off us when we militantly, continually want to do something he says no to, and so he says fine for a period? Yes, but never forget Like the prodigal son story, the father never stopped being the father, and the son never stopped being the son, even though the father said, fine, go hurt yourself for a while, I'll be standing here, come on back, right? This is the heartbeat. Sometimes our sin leads us to terrible places, and sometimes we just live in a fallen world where brokenness and tragedy are not connected to our sin at all. And yet the book of Ruth points us not to the middle, but to the end. Many of us need to hear what I'm about to say so you can have some freedom in your Christian life again and begin to understand the purposes of God correctly as you struggle with it. John Piper, who wrote these words, God's providence is hard. It's true. God had dealt bitterly with Naomi. At least in the short run, it could almost feel like bitterness. And perhaps some will say, and he writes it right here, that all of this happened because she sinned and Elimelech sinned and even the boys sinned. Maybe they shouldn't have married those women. Maybe. But not necessarily, as he brightly points out in Psalm 34, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Neither the Old or New Testament, he writes, promises believers will escape affliction in this life. It even says in Acts, through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. And of course, he says, the one who suffered most, who deserved it the least, was Jesus. He suffered horrifically and he was perfect. So there is no sure connection always between our suffering and our behavior. Sometimes, yes, but not always. It is not all therefore certain that Naomi's affliction was owing to God's displeasure with her. But then he says, but imagine, or suppose it was. Imagine God really had disciplined her. That makes the story doubly encouraging because it actually shows us that God is willing and even able to turn his judgments into joy. If Ruth was brought into the family even by sin, it's doubly astonishing that she is made the grandmother of David and the ancestor of Jesus. And here it is. Everyone ready? Don't ever think that your brokenness, tragedy, or sin of your past means there's no hope for your future. Don't start believing that because of what you have done in secret, or in public that was overtly sinful, or maybe you have been sinned against and you experience the ripples of tragedy in your life every day, do not think that that is wasted and purposeless. God, who sees all, who is providential, who is sovereign, can walk in and actually take the messiest parts of us and they can become the greatest grounding for his kingdom to come on earth. That is the heart of this. We need to understand as people as we read through Ruth 
that sometimes it is tragedy where we barely make it out. We become the very place where faith is built and you can give hope to others. We who have struggled with sin in this room, all of us, as we continually see God forgive us and it's overcome in our life, we can become the light of Jesus to others struggling with that very sin. Other people who have experienced loss, death, you who are widowed, you who have lost financial things and you never deserved it, you who have been robbed or stolen from, it's not always connected to sin, you who have experienced abuse, and there are many of us in this room that have, hear this, God can take these things and weave it into something much more profound that in the end will bring many more people to himself and the will of God will be brought forth. But you have to start with the idea that God is willing to do it and he is doing it. So the wrestling this week for us is this. Do you believe in providence? Do you like it? Do you get it? Are you comfortable? Wrestle. And have you ever sat down with our God who supposedly is holiness and love and we worship him and say, God, I don't get all of this. Like I relate to Naomi. Why has this happened to me? But I want to start living my life with the understanding that you're going to take this and produce great things out of my life and in my family. But here's the difference. Not so I feel better. So people can encounter you and your will, not my will, gets done. See, a lot of preachers preach providence and then they connect wealth to it. A lot of preachers preach providence and say, and you'll feel better. Guess what? You may not. But if you get to the place where it becomes a place of worship, not a place of just feeling okay, things could be profoundly changed in your life. The book of Ruth is about to show us providence, love, God's move in the nations, how he deals with race, how sex is supposed to be worked out, how family is supposed to look, but it all begins with God's move. Let's take a moment. The team will come back. Let's pray a few things, and then we'll see where we go this summer. God, a few things we want to talk to you about today. Some of us have great questions sitting in this room, and it's fair. And I know you're a God that is sovereign, but you're also a God that is close. So I pray that as people wrestle with tragedy, sin, history, that you would begin to give comfort that makes no sense. I pray that you'd begin to show them how things can be worked out for your good and for their good, but your will first. I also pray very specifically, God, that hope would begin to be birthed in many people today as they begin to see that things by themselves are not by themselves. I pray that you would begin to speak to people right here and online about all of their histories and what they see in the world and what they've experienced in their families and begin to teach them how you could use that and you are using that to bring about your kingdom on earth. Here's my simple prayer. God, take our brokenness, take our tragedies, take the sins of others against ourselves and take our own sin. Forgive us for the things we've done and begin to use it to bring God's will on earth, the glory of God into earth, to begin to produce great things among us. And I pray, Lord, uh, that you'd begin to show us how you are redeeming it so we have some hope. Uh, God, help us to keep wrestling stuff out. Help things to get clear. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you want to know more about C4, get connected to the life of the church, or give to this ministry, visit our website, www.c4church.com.